Psalm 91, if you have a Bible. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. This doesn't have a superscription, doesn't tell us that it's a prayer, for example, of Moses, the man of God, which is Psalm 90. It doesn't tell us that it's a psalm of David. <clears throat> We're just told that it's a psalm. So we don't know who wrote it quite or when they wrote it. But one commentator calls it the Psalter's central utterance on the security of the believer. A great, wonderfully uplifting psalm. When I read scriptures, I often have lots of questions. Sometimes questions of information, I frankly don't know what it's talking about and I need to find it out. Things like that, quite a lot of that, actually. But sometimes, like reading this psalm and other portions of scripture like it, one of the questions comes to mind, can it really be true? Do you ever have that question? This psalm, other psalms, other passages of scripture, can they really be true? Because biblical and church history seems to indicate, indicate that for Christians, life is not a bed of roses for the faithful servant of God. And I dare say your experience confirms that. I shouldn't think, if I ask for a show of hands, that many hands will go up if I said you have had a blemish-free pain-free life all your life. Most of you would look at me as if I had come down from Mars, wouldn't you? So if this psalm is true, why do godly men and women have problems? And they do. It appears to be promising a life of total security and safety the Psalter's central utterance on the security of the believer. And if we were to take this psalm as it were merely at face value and then confront what we do day by day, I think we would be in for a rather precipitous fall off a cliff of disappointment. We could even be devastated. 
But even in this psalm, verse 15, there is a hint of the darker side of life. Verse 15 says, He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. So even this psalm hints at the fact that for the believer, trouble is a part of life. Otherwise that verse would be irrelevant. So how then shall we read it? With a pinch of salt? A kind of, well that was very nice, but let's move on to real things. With a sort of a nod of interest and then we'll just put it to one side as we face the reality of life day by day. As perhaps wishful thinking? Well, it's scripture, so it can't be any of those. It's true. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 2 and verse 9. And this is Jesus writing to the church in Smyrna. And in speaking to the church in Smyrna, he says this. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So Jesus declares without any hesitation that they are poor, and in the same breath says they are rich. Well, which is it? It can't be both, can it? They're either poor or they're rich. Or can it? be that they're true simultaneously seen from the earthly visible perspective they are without a shadow of a doubt poor but seen from the heavenly invisible perspective and perspective is what revelation is all about they are rich so what Jesus is encouraging them to do is to see the world through his eyes, you are rich. Don't let the fact that you have nothing confuse you. You are rich. Now, this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't hopeful thinking. This isn't Jesus playing fast and loose with words. He's saying to them, if you look at your present circumstances, the deduction you will make is that you are poor. But if you were to see things from my perspective, you would have a completely different evaluation of your life. The man who says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, had to borrow a manger when he was born, had to borrow a cross when he was died, and borrow a tomb when he was buried, and between times never had a place to lay his head. And he said, I've come to give you life and have it to the full. And if you'd known Jesus and evaluated him in a kind of 21st century way, you'd just say he was poor with a capital P. But he had life that people flocked to. He had things that people were drawn to like moths to a light. He had life in all its fullness. So what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna is don't be confused and don't let your view of life be fashioned by what you can see merely. If you turn back with me to 1 Samuel 16, now you've found Revelation 2. 1 Samuel 16, oh for goodness sake Charles, put it up on the overhead. No, no, go on, rattle through. 1 Samuel 16, which is about halfway between the beginning of the Bible and the Psalms. So there's a, you know, it may not be quite halfway, but there you go, 1 Samuel 16. Anyway, even if you don't get to it, you'll remember the verse I'm going to tell you about because it's Jesse 
bringing his sons before Samuel because Samuel has turned up on the door and said to Jesse, God's got a task for one of your sons and wait for it, he's going to be king. So Jesse, of course, brings all his sons in order of age. Well, frankly, he doesn't even think he'll get past the eldest one. This obviously must be the one. If God wants a king, it's the eldest son. So when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, this is verse 6, 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And now is the verse you know very well. It's engraved on lots of, of pieces of wood. It's, it's been sewn into endless samplers. It's on endless pieces of document. Do not consider his appearance, is the Lord's reply, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You didn't know to need to go to 1 Samuel 16 to find that. You knew it anyway. So as Jesse parades his sons before Samuel, disappointed and then increasingly bewildered, as they all pass by with a, with a shake of the head, so much that when Jesse says, well, it was none of those, so you must have another one. Have you got another son? Jesse then remembers what kind of father is he of his youngest son? Because Samuel, and Samuel had to learn this point. Notice it was given to Samuel, not to Jesse. Samuel is getting it wrong. God looks at the heart. So while we look at the outward, and frankly, what else can we look at? God looks at the heart, the invisible world. And I would like to suggest to you that's a principle not merely about people. It works for people too. One of the things that is so enriching for the body of Christ is we've learned not to look on the visible but the invisible. Instead of evaluating people by what we see, we say, welcome here because the love of God constrains us to see people as made in the image of God. Some time ago, R.T. Kendall was at Westminster Chapel and they had um, Arthur Blessett there, who was a breath of fresh air, quite a challenge to them, and uh, spoke to them about evangelism. And he said, but I'm not going to just talk about it, we're going to do it. Whereupon the heart of everyone in Westminster Chapel sank because they were used not to doing it, but to listening about it. So one Saturday, R.T. Kendall's wife, so he told me once in a speaking engagement, went out on a Saturday morning with all the others to go and do a bit of evangelism around Parliament Square. She was terrified. And as she's walking along, there's this great strapping lad with a big bushy beard, long hair, Che Guevara t-shirt, open sandals, and looking quite aggressive, was walking towards her. And she thought with all her heart she just wanted to turn and run away, but she picked up one of her tracts and thrust it in his hand and prepared to withdraw rapidly in case you got a clip around the ear. But he stopped dead, took the tract, and as he's reading the tract, he was in floods of tears. Because he told her later, as they went back to the chapel and sat in the downstairs room having a cup of coffee, she said he was on he said he was on his way to Westminster Bridge, just around the corner, to throw himself off because life was not worth living. We see people not as the outward, but as the inward. But I think it's a principle for approaching life as a whole. 
we would have to say that life is not as it should be. The world is not as it should be. It's dysfunctional. It's warped. It's marred. Whatever word you want to use. And if we let our view of God be determined by the warpedness, the ruination of the world, we get a wrong view of God. Won't we? So if we let our view of God be controlled around us by this distorted world, we'll get a wrong or dis- wrong conclusion. But if we hold on to what the Bible says God is like, then it will be altogether different. That will enable us to face this dysfunctional, upset world with more confidence. Someone suggested, if you went to the book of Job, you don't have to go there, it's okay. The book of Job, do you like this running through the Bible stuff? The book of Job, he said it's like as if in chapters 1 and 2, the author of the play comes on and tells the audience the whole plot of the the forthcoming play. It's as if in chapters 1 and 2, God tells us everything that's going to happen. Well, not quite. Because in chapter 3, then, all the actors come on the stage and play it. But they don't know what the plot is. So the actors don't know what the plot is, strangely, but the audience do. How about that for a reversal? Now, why on earth would you sit in a theatre and watch a play, the plot of which you've already been told? I'll tell you why you'd watch it. Because you're not sure how it's going to end up. Because you don't know, because there's a twist in it. Now, first of all, Job is not principally and firstly about suffering. Oh, suffering is a big deal in the book of Job. But it's not firstly about suffering. Do you know what it's about? Here's my thought. It's about trust. Will Job trust God when everything goes wrong? Will he? That's the challenge of chapters 1 and 2. That's why we read the rest of the book, because we don't know whether he will hold fast to God till the end. He doesn't know the plot, nor do his friends. Will he trust God even when everything in the visible world conspires to tell him that God is evil, that God has no power? Now his friends come and tell him, That God is good, God punishes sin, since he's suffering, that must be punishment, therefore he has sinned, therefore he better repent of it, and then God will bless him again. That's the conclusion they come to, it's orthodox belief. By the time you get to the last chapter, you find that God says, (coughs) to your orthodox belief, well he doesn't actually say that, but that's the sort of thing he says, and says, I prefer the... Anger of Job, this honest anger where he came to me and said, I don't understand what's going on, what is going on here? He prefers that to these platitudes of men who had no understanding of what was going on but pretended God was kind of a vicious, judgmental God. The book of does, does in fact show that Job does hold on to God. He does trust in the end. All his impotence and bewilderment is pointed towards God. He looks for a deeper explanation than the visible world gives him. So he's confused about everything around, but he doesn't look at everything around and say, this must prove that God is X or Y. He says, no, I know God is different to that. That's why I can't make any head or tail of it. I know my Redeemer lives. And I've got things to tell him. 
So when we go back to the Psalm 91, what am I suggesting? That we should have a sort of caesarasera, whatever happens, happens? I don't think so. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't let the visible world control our understanding of the nature of reality. We should let the truth about God control our understanding of reality. So Psalm 91, full of wonderful declarations of who God is and what I might expect and hope from him is true. It is true, absolutely. But I live in a world that is marred and dysfunctional. And because of that, things go wrong. But that doesn't prove that God is evil. It just says the world is marred. So when that things don't work out in the way I hoped they would, the way I prayed perhaps they would, God is still God. And I should continue to put my hope and trust in him. Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. Now, you don't know what you're facing this week, do you? You don't know what circumstances are going to come up and bite you in the heel, do you? It could be a wonderful week in terms of things going swimmingly well, and you just glide through life this week with a broad grin on your face, and everything works. Wouldn't that be a first for most of us? But it can happen, can't it? But for most of us, and we don't do it with a sense of dread and fear, recognise that there are, as the um, advertisers say, things can go down as well as up. Um, that's the probability, isn't it? That some of the things this week which we face will be disappointing. We'll, we'll have a disappointing reaction or relationship with someone we were hoping a better one for, and it just will not work out. Something we had hoped would happen hasn't happened. The resources we were hoping will come through don't come through. Something completely out of the blue happens that changes the whole way I look at life. All those things are entire possibilities. But we are called in a psalm like this to trust in God despite those things. And not in a kind of fairy tale kind of way. I wish he were, but he's not. But in a kind of robust way. You see, everything is passing away except God, isn't it? So where would you hold on to if everything was passing away? A friend of ours went to Peru for some years, years ago now, and she had never lived through an earthquake, and she woke up one day to an earthquake. It was in the middle of the night, and the whole of the house was shaking, and everything was shaking, the table was shaking, and the walls were shaking, and it eventually dawned on her it was an earthquake. So she ran out of the house... Half expecting that when she gets out of the, ho the house, everything will be fine. Of course it isn't, because the road is shaking, and all the buildings are shaking, and the pavement's shaking, and everything's shaking. And she said, there was nowhere I could stand that wasn't shaking. It was terrifying. Now, it probably lasted seconds, minutes at the outside. But during that time, she had nowhere to hold on to. Life can be a bit like that. Which is why we put our hand in the hand of God who's the only one not shaking, and everything else is. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't denial of reality. This is actually hold on, holding on to reality, isn't it? It's why we're called believers, why we are followers of Jesus Christ. Let me read this psalm again. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There are times when we have to speak to ourselves and we have to commend ourselves to do a certain course of action when it's good and it isn't a sign of madness to speak to ourselves. And this week, this psalmist and God, of course, is encouraging us to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. I don't know what picture that conjures up for you, but to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, there's no promise here that because that happens, you'll be put in a glass bubble, untouched by anything else. We've just been exploring that reality. But that's where you are when it all goes wrong. That's where you are when it all goes right. Praise the Lord. When everything works as we hoped it would. When we pray and God answers our prayers in precisely the way we had asked. So this is what we encourage to do. To dwell in the shelter of the Most High, rest in the shadow of the Almighty, to say, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 9, if you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. Which sounds, doesn't it, still contradictory. But we know in the end, no, ultimately, no harm can befall us. We know that as an ultimate reality. That there is a day coming. So this has a future reality that is the firmest one of all, which we have to hold on to. Because none of us knows how long we may have on this earth. None of us at all. Whether we're old or younger, we don't know how long we have. But we know one day. So no harm will befall us and no disaster will come near your tent. This is God's desire for us. This is the world that God had planned for us. It should be like this, but of course it isn't. Because this is what God will do for me, but of course other people are involved. So I trust in him and look to him. I hold on to him. I make him my dwelling place. Which brings me back to the baptisms again you've got next week. The starting point of our lives. Baptism belonging right at the beginning, doesn't it? I think I was baptised within about two or three months of becoming a Christian. I was so glad. I wish I was baptised the very morning I became a Christian. But there you go. You have to go through a little procedure first, don't you? But I remember that. Of thinking life now begins to make sense. Now it does. Well, since then it's been a long old trek. Uphill and down dale. Uphill and down dale. But I know for this, my life has changed. And it's reminded me this morning, just hearing about it and singing these lovely songs about the grace of God and the mercy of God, what God intended for us in the beginning. And when we become his, when we become followers of Jesus, when we join the apprentices of Jesus, we're beginning to grab hold of the life as it was meant to be, even though we live in the kingdom of this world, this clash of cultures. So this psalm 
is recognizing we live in the, a world which is under the dominion of the evil one, but encouraging us to hold on to that. So let me pray with you. And as I give us a moment to begin, I just want, if you know, just run your mind through the week as you see it unfolding so far. What's in your diary or on your calendar or in your head about what's coming up this week. The routine things that happen every week at certain times which form the structure of your week. The, perhaps the unexpected things that have slotted into this week or those occasional things. Are you looking forward to them all? Do some fill you with a sense of dread? The promise God has made many times is I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God will be with us through every one of those instances in this coming week. All the things that Sylvia announced to us that were happening in the church, but everything in your life as well. Everything. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. So if you make the Most High your dwelling, then you will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Father, we know some of the things that we will encounter this week and for them we ask for your grace, that you will fill us with love and the capacity and ability to face those things with confidence and to take on responsibility carefully and see our way through. Some things will catch us unawares this coming week, Lord. For them we ask for grace and that ability, Father, to rest in you and to trust in you and to hold fast to you, drawing our strength from you. Anything we dread, Lord, at this precise moment in time, we're not looking forward to it, Father, we ask for grace that you would help us for you are always with us and we are confident of that Lord that you will give us grace not for any other reason but that you love us and you love us for no other reason than you are God and we rest in that truth we rest in the fact that you are trustworthy you are everything you say you are so for all of us here, me, my friends here, Lord, all of us, for Jim and for others not with us, Lord, we just ask that we will be able to rest in the shadow of the Almighty this week. We'll be able to rest, Lord, and draw our strength and confidence from you. For we know, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing this week or any week will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So with that as our confidence, Lord, we bless you.
and praise your holy name. Amen.